Hello, it's Monday 9th of January. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's first podcast of the year, there can only be one topic we discuss. That's on pretty much every headline right now. And that is, of course, China's removal of border restrictions. Flipping our usual format, I'll be the one interviewing my co-host, Gary Bowerman, and Dr. Wolfgang George Alt, CEO of the China Outbound Tourism Research Institute and CEO of the Meaningful Tourism Center. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So here it is, the first episode of 2023. And as we roll into our fourth year of the Southeast Asia Travel Show, it's great news that China's reopening is starting to dominate all analysis of travel and tourism, not just here in Asia Pacific, but worldwide. So it's only fitting that we have invited onto the show a longtime friend and co-collaborator, Professor Wolfgang Art, CEO of Coatry, the China Outbound Tourism Research Institute, and CEO of the Meaningful Tourism Center. Wolfgang is based in Hamburg in Germany. Yes, I am so excited to have two China experts to talk all things China reopening on the show today. And this timing of the reopening has come at just the right time for you both, as well as you're both set to launch your new co-produced book, the 2023 China Outbound Tourism Handbook, which comes out on the 22nd of January. Um, I'll drop a link to that in the show notes on the website. So I'm in the interviewer's seat today and I'll be grilling Gary and Wolfgang with my burning questions. And there are a lot of them and some of our listeners' questions too. So let's start. Wolfgang, how are you and where are you today? Well, thank you. I'm fine and of course uh, excited like I think the whole global tourism industry about the new developments in China. I am in Hamburg in my office. Uh, it is. Uh, it has stopped raining actually. Uh, so, and we have a very mild winter until now. And I'm very happy that I can be on your show. And uh, I'm sure uh, we will talk uh, a lot about the the Chinese market in the coming weeks and months because we all have been waiting for three years to the reopening of the Chinese borders. So finally, it's happening. Finally, after all of those discussions and conversations, it's happening, yes. So, Gary, can you talk us through what actually changed on the 8th of January in terms of China's border policies? So what actually changed is China announced uh, late at night on the 26th of December that as from the 8th of January, which was yesterday, it will be dropping its quarantine requirement for returnees and travelers coming into China. So basically, Chinese that travel out of the country can now go back to China without having any quarantine. Foreign Chinese citizens that are going into the country uh, can also travel without uh, any quarantine. And at the same time, it dropped the border requirements between Hong Kong and mainland China and mainland China and Macau. So at the moment, that's the biggest clarity that we have is there is a freedom of travel mostly um, between China, Hong Kong, and Macau. There are quotas at the moment, but those will probably get dropped in future. But as it stands at the moment, Chinese travelers can travel around the world, subject to some of the things that we'll talk about later in terms of testing requirements elsewhere, and also the lack of flights at the moment, but they can travel internationally once again. Yes. And maybe to add to this is also, uh, as of today, basically, uh, the Chinese authorities will start to issue passports again, which they didn't do for the last one and a half year. 
So that also for many Chinese, the first step is to get a passport. And that is also starting as of today. Amazing. And how long do passports normally take to be processed, Wolfgang? <laughs> Good question. I, I would imagine that a lot of the people who are supposed to uh, process the passports are either home sick with COVID or are home, are home hiding from going onto the street because they are afraid of getting COVID. So I'm not so very sure uh, if uh, it will be that fast. So I rather expect that in uh, different parts of the of the country will be different, of course, that there will be quite a few places where it will take some time before the potential Chinese outbound travelers will actually have the passport in their hand. Hmm. And so from what I understand about the rules, um, FIT travel is permitted, but outbound group travel is still not. Is that the case? Well, what, what it actually means is that uh, people can travel out of China, but what happened on January the 20th, back in 2020, is that uh, all of the tour agents, travel agents, the OTAs were banned from selling group tour packages. At the moment, that ban hasn't been lifted, but whether we'll actually hear some official announcement about it or whether it will just merge into the reopening, it's, it's a little bit unclear at the moment. So what the, what the government said is uh, on the 26th of December, that for outbound, they will uh, move forward in a rational and organized way according to the circumstances, something like that. So it is it is not clear, but I think it's it it will happen uh, quite quite soon, and uh, it it is. But it's it's not only the question if the Chinese government is finally letting their people out again. It's also, of course, a question of do they get a visa? So there are many countries which until now have not announced that they will start to issue especially leisure tourism visa. Hmm. So a few potential headwinds there then, let's say, for, uh, for Chinese travelers looking to travel right now. Um, so pre-pandemic, you know, we were just talking about FIT travel, we were talking about group travel. Which one was the, the most significant? Were there more travelers um, from China in groups or as FIT, Wolfgang? Well, there, there was a, a, a tendency that already before the pandemic struck, there were less and less mass market package tours. So tours where you only meet your fellow travelers at the airport and you have to run behind the flag of the tour guide. So that was already in 2019 seen as something uh, first time travelers from third tier cities would do. But if you were a citizen of, of Beijing or Shanghai or, or Guangzhou or Shenzhen, uh, you would not dare anymore to be seen to to behave like like a sheep running uh, with the other sheep. So it it already was a, a clear tendency that more and more people were either traveling as FITs or a growing number of them were traveling semi-organized, which means that uh, you would have a group of uh, family or friends or colleagues. And they would go to a tour operator and they would tell the tour operator what they want and uh, ask the tour operator to, to put together a nice package according to their wishes so that they were still using a tour operator but not buying a tour out of a catalog, so to say, but uh, a customized tours to their special uh, needs and wishes. 
uh, but without the uh, uh, necessity for themselves to, to, to book all this stuff by themselves and maybe make a mistake or something like that. So, and, and that is certainly uh, con to continue that you will have uh, less and less uh, package tours and more and more semi-organized tours or FIT tours. And of course, for Southeast Asia, if people go uh, for a long beach weekend to Vietnam for the third time, yeah, they will not need a tour operator anymore. They they can they can book this by themselves, so that that will be easy. Of course, for specific tours like going to Antarctica or going to the Amazon jungle, uh, you of course will have to rely on on package tours still. Interesting. So there's you still see this shift then away from group tours towards semi-organized FIT, Gary. And this this is, a, I guess, the, the question that's being asked so much at the moment, and this is why there's so much hype around it. But how important, really, is it to the world's tourism industry that Chinese travelers are back? Vital. I mean, everybody's been talking about this for, for three years since China closed down. As we know, here in Southeast Asia, around about 23% of all visitors into the region in 2019 were from China. You look at most countries in Asia Pacific, China is the number one. Uh, visitor market, or it was back in uh, 2019. It's not just about the visitor numbers, though. It's about spending power. It's about the investment that comes from behind the tourism industry. So you look at the hotel investors, the airlines that you know take out a lot of the slots at the big airports. That, that then feed, feeds into the, the economies themselves. So uh, Chinese tourism and Chinese tourism investment um, supports employment numbers, for example. It supports business growth and development. So over the, the past 10 years, I would say, since 2010, you know, the, the importance of Chinese tourism to global tourism, tourism economics has just increased. Uh, and you can see that over the past three years. You know, everybody was talking last year about how the numbers of visitors in most countries of our region were down significantly to what they were before. And a large reason for that was because there simply were no Chinese travelers. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think it's, uh, it's just vital, like you said, for Southeast Asia as well. So we put out a call for questions from our listeners and uh, what burning questions they had. Um, and we had a question from Simon Westaway, who's been a regular on the podcast based in Australia um, and strategy director at Roycecom. And he asks, how will the testing requirements for other countries impact Chinese travelers' destination choice? Uh, that's one for you, Wolfgang. Yeah, of course, this has been hotly debated uh... And cl clearly, I, I think uh, this has been uh, hyped up too much because as long as we just talk about testing, the Chinese are the world champions of testing. Uh, probably everybody in China has been tested, I don't know, 500 times in the last two years. So they will not mind one more test. And also, testing is still free in, in, in China. And, and also, uh, it might be also good for the peace of mind of the travelers themselves if they know that everybody else in the aircraft they're flying out of China again uh, is has been tested uh, negatively. So that is something which I think is not a big deal as long as everybody coming out of China is tested and not only Chinese people. That would be uh, racial discrimination, uh, racial profiling. But as long as everybody is tested, uh, why not? I, I don't think that this will really stop Chinese people from, from traveling. There's only one country in the world, Morocco, which actually has been 
uh, declaring that they will refuse entry to all Chinese travelers or all people coming from China, actually, uh, which I think is uh, total nonsense. And and anyway, this testing is, uh, I think, more done towards the home communities of the of the receiving countries uh, to to uh, quell, uh, quell their their anxiety that the Chinese will bring back the uh, another mutation of the virus. Actually, it's a bit like uh, closing the the door of the of the hen coop when the fox is already inside. I mean, the virus is everywhere in the world, and and anyway, you will not stop it because not everybody is flying. Uh, from China to to other de destinations. Um, now, as uh, Gary just said, so you can go to Hong Kong and then fly from Hong Kong, or you can fly uh, first to uh, to 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 another country, and uh, I don't know, flying to to Frankfurt, and then on the way back uh, have a stop over in Singapore. So that is, uh, I think, all uh, politics, and also in a few months, hopefully. Uh, the the pandemic will be over in China as well. It will cost a lot of lives, unfortunately, but uh, there will be herd immunity reached in in three months or so. And so I think this is all temporary, and 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 uh, nobody will talk about this anymore in in a couple of months. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there are two points of context that are pretty important at this point, and I think it's. It's absolutely no coincidence that the timing of China's reopening is right now. You know, this, this weekend was the start of the 40-day travel period for, for the Lunar New Year holiday for Chinese New Year. So the timing is absolutely primed for that. But also overlaying that, as Wolfgang just said, is that China's reopening, which is pretty unusual for countries around the world, in the midst of a massive outbreak of COVID-19. I think that's what's alerted countries, particularly in our region, is the fact that China's infection curve is still going up. And we don't yet know whether that would create new variants or anything like that. It seems at the moment that's not the case. But, you know, I think that is the context for why some countries have reacted the way that they have. Yes. And I have to say, obviously, I'm not a medical doctor, but all the experts I've been listening to in the last few days, they all have been rather saying that in China, the, the virus uh, is uh, meeting with almost no resistance. So there is no pressure on the virus to mutate. And that if there is a new mutation coming, and I think in the United States that's already happened, it's rather in uh, surroundings where people have a high level of protection from, from vaccination or from having had COVID before. So that there's that is where the pressure on the virus is to come up with a new trick uh, to, to still uh, be able to uh, distribute itself. So therefore, I think it is a rather a media thing as well that, that people say, oh, uh, China, this is where the, the virus came from in the first place. So that is now where the new virus is coming from in, uh, again. And of course, I mean, it's perfectly understandable that nobody wants to see a back to square one development uh, in the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you, you both make really great points there. And I, lo I love that Wolfgang, China's the champion of testing. Well, <laughs> they, they are. <laughs> We've seen so many images of them uh, being tested on a daily basis. So Gary, just now you were talking about, you know, this is the, the beginning period of the 40 days travel for Lunar New Year. What can we expect for Lunar New Year travel in China, both domestically and internationally? 
well, firstly, domestically, I think it will be very, very strong. You know, the, the Chinese New Year, as in most festivals and, and holiday periods throughout Asia Pacific the last three or four years, has been hugely below par. You know, Chinese last year, people were dissuaded from traveling for Chinese New Year. Um, the first year, 2020, the outbreak actually happened just around about Chinese New Year. So this is the first time the virus is actually being officially downgraded in China to its category B. As Wolfgang said, so many people in the major cities now have actually had the first, their first uh, encounter with COVID-19. They've come through it. So they're going to feel more confident to travel domestically. I think internationally is a whole different reason and not just because of COVID-19 and not just because of the testing, but simply logistical factors. There just aren't enough flights at the moment. I think China is operating at the moment way below 10% of its international capacity as it was before the pandemic. And the government, the, the, the Civil Aviation Administration of China doesn't really seem to be in any rush at the moment to announce new flights apart from to Hong Kong. Uh, and I think that's specifically so that it drives a very, very strong domestic travel season over the next 40 days. So international travel for a number of reasons. Wolfgang also mentioned the fact of passport reissuance, the fact that there aren't many flights. You know, I don't think we're going to see much of, a, of an outbound rebound yet. But that will come. Um, but you're probably going to wait until the second or third quarter for that. Yeah, well, that leads nicely to my next question. I mean, what kind of volume should we expect for Chinese travellers in 2023? Is it going to reach pre-pandemic levels for international travel, Wolfgang? Well, actually, we dared to do a forecast, even so. The last few years have told us that uh, it's <laughs> very easy to to get it wrong. But I have to say. Uh, you mentioned that Gary and me are, are publishing a, a book in, in two weeks, and uh, we got it right that we started uh, a long time ago to, to work on, on, on this book, and uh, we were expecting that around now there should be something happening in the market, so we got that right. So therefore, yeah, so the forecast is that we will not reach uh, pre-pandemic levels. Uh, so we had about 170 million uh, border crossing from mainland China in 2019. And so uh, the estimation is that we will reach about two-thirds of that level, so which would be 110, 115 million uh, border crossings, of which about half are going to greater China, so Hong Kong SAR, Macau SAR, and the beautiful island of Taiwan. And about half will go beyond, and of that the majority obviously will go to Southeast Asia. This will happen uh, starting in the second quarter. So now in the first quarter, uh, you will see some urgent travels for non-leisure business. So you will see business people, you will see students, uh, some family reunions happening, also some for well-connected people with a passport already uh, now during Chinese New Year. But the uh, main wave of uh, Chinese leisure travelers of tourists will start in the second quarter and will be uh, stronger in the second half of the year than the first half of the year. So if things go relatively well, we are expecting that in 2024, uh, we will come back to the, to the level of uh, 2019. But well, you have to keep in mind that in uh, 2021 and 2022, each year we had less than 10 million international departures. And most of this was just to Macau, the only place which was open for Chinese travelers most of the time 
without the need to go into quarantine when they came back to mainland China. So in the year 2000, we had 10 million uh, border crossings. So we, we are below uh, where we were more than 20 years ago. So it, it's obviously some work to, to come back to 2019 levels. But I, I, I think it will be more than 100 million trips, which is already uh, really making a difference and it will uh, have uh, quite an impact, especially in Southeast Asia, of course. For sure. I mean, 100 million is uh, a significant number. So you were saying just then Q2, you see leisure travelers ramping up. What segments of Chinese travelers um, are going to be traveling first at that time? As I I just said, I think it it will be non-leisure travelers. So there is a lot of Chinese companies uh, invested outside of China and the, the, the boss had the opportunity for three years to go and, and have a look. Also, I've been told by people that a lot of companies uh, have been asking their Western counterparts to be invited for, for a business trip, uh, which uh, probably in, in many cases will be a business cum leisure trip uh, because the, the budget for international travel uh, of the companies has not been touched uh, for the last three years. So it will be probably rather easy for uh, people working in, in uh, many Chinese companies to get the permission to spend some money on, on a business trip, uh, which then will be also uh, connected to a little bit of sightseeing as, as well. So, uh, and of course, well, I, I know people here in, 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 in Germany, uh, Chinese students uh, who uh, uh, got a baby and uh, got, got married and where the, uh, the, the proud grandparents uh, die to see the grandchild and will try as soon as possible to come here uh, to have a look at, at uh, the new son-in-law and, 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 and the baby, especially as they will probably tell their daughter not to come to China at this point because of the pandemic and and the organizational chaos, which uh, is is uh, uh, talked about uh, by many people. So so it will be first uh, people who have some special reason to travel. There might be also some people uh, who had uh, planned to have some health treatment a long time ago and, and will be eager to do that. So and and after that, of course, you will have also leisure tourists who are saying, uh, I want to travel as, as soon as possible. Uh, and you will have other people who say, OK, well, let's wait and see. Remember, they have been told for three years by the Chinese media, by the Chinese government, that it is very dangerous to go outside of China and they should be happy that they are not in America or or somewhere else where so many people die from COVID. So there will be a lot of people who will first wait and see a bit uh, what happens if the the first uh, outbound travelers, if they come back and they have green spots on their face or not. Uh, And if they look healthy, then they will say, okay, it seems to be safe. Let's let's start traveling again. And there's one other group to mention is I think is uh, people who just want to run away. So uh, I think there is a group of uh, younger, well-educated uh, people who ha- are fed up and say, okay, 
I want to relocate to wherever, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, Jakarta, or, or to Europe or to Australia. And, and they will, they will travel to have a look, uh, which city might be the best for them to, to relocate to. That will also be parents, uh, not happy with the fact that the number of English lessons have been reduced in school and, uh, who uh, are looking for their kids uh, to go to a uh, more critical thinking orientated uh, school system, something like that. So that is, I think, what what uh, is important to keep in mind when we talk about Chinese travelers. We're not just talking about people going on a holiday. Yeah, I think I would add to that. I think in, in this region, Hannah, I think the, the first leisure segment that would come back in ordinary circumstances is the short trip, short stay leisure segment. So the four or five long day, long weekend holidays, that kind of thing. And I think we would see that. But the problem with that at the moment is just lack of flights and lack of flight prices. So you could see uh, some of that um, travel going into cross-border travel. So perhaps the Laos train or, you know, traveling into Vietnam just for a few days. That's possibly, I would think, where we might see the start of the leisure segment in this region. So, Gary, that, again, leads very nicely to my next question. Um, International air capacity, you and Wolfgang have both touched on this a few times. Obviously, it's extremely limited right now. Can we expect that to ramp up quickly? And is the ramping up of that going to um, possibly impact the general cost of, of jet fuel globally and, and make air traffic and travel more expensive? Yeah, so the, it's a good question because it's very multi-tiered. In terms of will we see air capacity ramp up, well, that's almost entirely in the purview of the Chinese government and then from them, uh, the Civil Aviation Administration of China. Because as we know, China's, even in normal circumstances, 2018, 29, China's airspace is extremely highly regulated. And you know, we've seen in, in domestic travel in China, you, know, you see shutdowns in, in parts of the country just almost for no reason. So the reopening is a very, very negotiated process. Airlines, I'm pretty sure, are in negotiations with the CAAC to try and work out what capacity slots they can get, what frequency they can get. Um, you know, that was just dragged down to almost nothing over the pandemic. There were some airlines were allowed one or two or three flights a week. They had to go into only specific airports. There weren't many airports that were accepting international flights. So we need to get all that infrastructure system back. And I think if we go back to pre-pandemic uh, times, Air Asia used to fly into 26 cities in China. Now that's going to take time for that sort of capacity to get back into the system. So we'll have to look at certain issues, you know, which airlines, which destinations will be prioritized, uh, which airports in China would be prioritized. So, you know, can it be ramped up quickly? The Chinese airlines can ramp up quite quickly because they've been flying domestically. They don't really have many planes on the ground. Uh, their pilots and their crews have been working. So they can actually ramp up. This is just really how the government will actually allow this uh, bottleneck to be to be released. In terms of the issue of flight prices, well, it'll, it comes down to, you know, the number of flights available and, and that will bring down prices and we'll see what demand is. The jet fuel issue, I think we've talked about this before, is quite interesting because it's, you know, the jet fuel price has been so volatile uh, over recent months and years um, and it was sort of starting to, to taper off a bit, but uh, taper off a little bit in terms of price. Um, but, you know, the huge demand surge from Chinese airlines for more jet fuel could, could impact that. There are a lot of other factors that could impact jet fuel as well. I don't think it's just China. The other angle is that so far, most airlines in our region over the last year have just gone for yield. They've actually tried to manage their capacity so that they can raise their, their prices 
their input costs are higher, but they're raising their, their airfares quite a high level so that they can go for profitability, so that they can reclaim a lot of that lost money from over the pandemic period. And they can also start paying their, their shareholders who invested a lot of money over the pandemic, some of their yields back. So will Chinese airlines go the same route? Will they go for yield or will they actually swallow those extra costs just to get people traveling again? No, we'll have to wait and see. Yes, and, and uh, maybe I can uh, add to that. So from the perspective of uh, long uh, distance uh, flight, so I've been talking to a few airline people and uh, of course uh, they had a kind of plan B in, in their drawers, but I think like everybody, they have also been Uh, surprised by the uh, suddenness of the de of the uh, development uh, of the changes, and so therefore, as Gary just said, uh, so in Asia and in China, the the uh, aircraft uh, kept flying to a bigger extent than uh, for a company like uh, Lufthansa or Turkish Airlines uh, and so on. They had uh, a lot of their the aircraft. Uh, Grounded and uh, also a lot of the the, the, the crews uh, the, reduced the number of people uh, they were employing and the, and it takes a bit of time to bring all this uh, back. So basically, it will be with the summer schedule that that uh, we see really big increases. And, and saying that also probably in the next two one two three months the demand will not grow that fast uh, for the reasons we, 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 we just discussed. Of course, uh, the, Chinese, the Chinese airlines, uh, even though they were also supported by the government, I mean, they also had problems. And, and you know that a uh, couple of airlines, like I think Southern China Airlines and also Hainan Airlines, uh, they they had their stewardesses in, in the uniform uh, starting uh, selling perfumes and cosmetics live streaming uh, because there are so charming and good looking ladies uh, so to, and there have, was not enough to do for them uh, in the air so it is i think also the chinese airlines who are uh, indeed looking uh, to to uh, get some more uh, money uh, back into their pockets and uh, so a, a lufthansa flight from frankfurt to shanghai a couple of months ago uh, would cost you 8000 9000 euros economy class so, so it will be certainly much cheaper than that in, in the coming months. Yeah, I think overlaying that as well, Hannah, you've got in, in Asia Pacific, it will be easier for Asia Pacific Airlines and Chinese Airlines to, to basically roll out new capacities. When you're looking at Europe or you're looking at longer haul, you have a, a big geographical problem. And that is the fact that to get from China to Europe, you generally have to fly across Russia. Um, which Chinese airlines will be able to do, but European airlines cannot. So the Chinese airlines, therefore, would have a, a bit of a, a pricing advantage, I think. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that, flying over Russia, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, another bonus for Southeast Asia then. So moving on then, and I'd love to talk about expectations for Chinese travelers. And Gary, you've said many times on the pod over the past few years that You know, Chinese travelers and their expectations have not stayed still. And if you have not kept track of the changes during the pandemic, then as a, as a tourism business, as a tourism destination, you're, you're very much going to be behind the curve when borders reopen. Um, so, Gary, how have these expectations changed for Chinese travelers? Yeah, I think Wolfgang has this phrase that he uses is that China 
travel didn't really stop in China. It just stopped because they couldn't actually travel. But the engagement with travel, the, the research and the, the interest in finding destinations for the future continued. People are still have been for the past three years very, very interested in travel. I mean, if you go back to, I think it was May or June uh, of 2020, just after the first Wuhan lockdown, after China was really, really struggling with COVID-19, the world was about to come to terms with that, I guess. But this phrase started emanating on Chinese social media called revenge travel. Now, that that phrase went global, but it actually started in China simply because young people were fed up of the fact they couldn't travel for two or three months uh, and wanted to get back out and spend on travel again. Now, that was two and a half years ago. So you can imagine this pent up demand, this desire to, to, to find their next destination, the first destination they'll go back to after three years. What has been quite interesting is that destinations around the world, museums around the world, tourism boards, they have been trying to engage with the Chinese uh, market virtually and digitally, creating virtual tours um, to make sure that people are updated with the latest information, the latest uh, new products and services that are happening in some of those countries. Not everybody has done that, but the most forward-thinking countries have done so. And again, some of the, the better forward-thinking countries have already been marketing in China, just for as an example. Winter sports is such a huge popular thing in China at the moment, particularly after the Beijing Olympics. And Switzerland has been marketing in recent weeks, uh, doing roadshows, trying to in engage people to go to Switzerland, which you know is trying to be a little bit ahead of the curve. So there are a lot of segments that I think people will be looking at more carefully. But overall, the expectations are that now Chinese can travel. We will see new booking patterns, I think. People will be looking not to go back to the tried and trusted destinations time and time again. They might want to for the first trip, particularly into Southeast Asia, just to feel their way back into travel. But, you know, you will see uh, more interest. Wolfgang mentioned Antarctica. You look at European destinations like Albania, Serbia. The Middle East, I think, will be very, very hot. A lot of Chinese uh, have been searching out uh, Qatar, for example, after the World Cup, finding out what they can do there. So these kinds of trends will, will follow what's happening in the minute. So I think it's kind of a little bit difficult to to predict which destinations will be popular because it, it can change quite fast depending on events going on around the world. The the expectations and, and the demands uh, will change in, in many different aspects. I mean, that's why we have been writing a whole book about it. But I think it, it, it's also uh, important to say that where do the Chinese people will travel to? I mean, this is also one of the big questions discussed at the moment. That also depends on what are the offers made? So for lesser known uh, destinations, uh, and that can be also inside, let's say, Thailand or, or, or Malaysia or the famous uh, Ten New Bali, things like that. So uh, if they are able to attract uh, more Chinese tourists, also depends on uh, what reasons are they giving people to come there? If you, if you tell them uh, we are... We have beautiful beaches uh, and we are almost as famous as Bali. Uh, why not go to the original then? So, and there is so much special interest, uh, uh, which also people had time in China for three years to develop their hobbies. Uh, and, and there will be a lot of people who are interested in, in all different kinds of things from, from uh, cooking to uh, music, uh, to, to culture, to architecture, uh, whatever. So if you if you offer them some something special, something which is really uh, bullseye uh, hitting uh, their 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 interests, then uh, they will also come. And uh, uh, Gary mentioned a, a country like Albania, uh, which is, uh, for instance, one of the 
last uh, places in Europe where the countryside really looks like countryside uh, and, and look like maybe uh, decades or, or centuries ago. So if, if they package this right to say, okay, uh, this is where you can see uh, uh, how, how it used to be and not try to sell them the five modern buildings in uh, Tirana, which went up the last two years, and say, hey, look, we also have some modern buildings, and look, we also have three Gucci boutiques. Uh, so that then uh, people will not be interested, but if they if they understand which segments of the market are interested in which kind of, of special offers, that will also influence the, the, the answer to the question, where will the Chinese travel to and what will they expect? So the number one answer to all this is there is obviously not the Chinese outbound tourists. There are a lot of different market segments according to, to age, to travel experience, to uh, money, to uh, where people are, are staying. Uh, if they are living in the north of China and therefore are sun seekers or if they live in the south of China and have enough sunshine at home. So all these um, different things uh, are important. And so therefore, I think this is, if there's one takeaway, it, it is still uh, know the market uh, and the market segments and, and to try to find out which market segments are best fitting to what you have to offer. I think that's such a great point that there, there isn't just one type of Chinese traveler. You're absolutely right. It's an enormous country, an enormous population. And um, that's, that's the beauty of it, the different segments within it. Now, Gary, um, again, we, we've touched on this before on, on the podcast, but technology within the Chinese tourism ecosystem is really important, is it? It's, it's very different to Southeast Asia um, and the rest of the world. So what are the kind of key differences um, that tourism businesses should be looking out for? Yeah, it is a good question. And I think this comes back to the fact that in the, in the rest of the world, we tend to see travel and tourism as a separate ecosystem. The travel industry sells itself as travel and tourism. In China, that doesn't really exist. And that is mostly because of consumer technology. So the, the Chinese super apps and the Chinese uh, consumer industry is very, very technologically savvy. You'd probably say that Chinese consumers of all ages, particularly the post-1990s, post-2000 generation, so the sort of Gen Z generations, are perhaps the most technologically indulged consumers in the world. Their every single technological whim is, is, is sated. They use their mobiles for absolutely everything. It's a, virtually a cashless economy. Nobody carries cash or cards anymore. Everything is QR code payment-based. But you're basically talking about a lifestyle economy, not just a travel or tourism economy. So everything is integrated. So that's travel, tourism, shopping, lifestyle, fashion, gaming, digital banking, content streaming, particularly music. All of these things are basically merged into one. And younger people tend to see of themselves, uh, not travel isn't really a treat. It's not an escape from the daily life. It's part of their lifestyle. And I think that's why there is such pent up demand amongst young Chinese people is because they just see it now as almost their birthright. You know, it's, it's something that they were born to do and traveling is just in their DNA. We haven't seen so much of that even domestically because there have been all these city lockdowns and there have been travel bans 
that have prevented them from doing that. But I think what the world will see when the Chinese come back is that the the te- technological savvy, the mobile understanding of digital technologies, the mobile understanding of apps, of metaverses, of Web3, of digital banking, digital finance. It's very, very advanced level, even amongst very young people. There is a huge uh, willingness to understand technology and to use it. Everybody wants to be a first adopter. So, you know, we could go, we could talk for days and days about which technologies are the most important, but it's just the overall technological culture is embedded into consumerism in China. So I've got a question from one of our listeners as well, Mike Ball, who's a sustainable tourism consultant. And he says, Wolfgang, given that holidays and tourism are usually among the first types of consumerism that are cut back on when spending confidence is low, restricted or curtailed, in what sectors of the Chinese outbound market are these cutbacks most likely to be seen? And moreover, in what ways will Chinese outbound tourists seek to gain more bang from their buck? And what ways will they express this lesser liquid cash availability whilst on holiday or traveling? Well, that's a <laughs> complex question. Well, I, I would first, I would say from uh, not only talking about the Chinese market, but, but generally speaking, we have seen, for instance, in the 2008-2009 economic crisis that people were not cutting back on traveling. Maybe they were spending less money on traveling, but they were rather uh, buying their new car one year later than stopping to go on a, on a holiday trip in the summertime. Uh, so, But of course, it is clear that uh, the rich people in, in, in China are a little bit less rich than, than they were a couple of years ago. And uh, this has mainly to do with the fact that most of the wealth in China is uh, uh, parked in uh, real estate and that the prices for real estate have been going down now for uh, almost one and a half years uh, every month. And so therefore uh, the affluent people are uh, a bit more cautious with with the money than than they were uh, before, but still uh, will be able to afford uh, to spend a couple of thousand dollars on a, on, a, on a holiday trip and uh, uh, what will happen is, and this probably is again to the advantage of Southeast Asia, that the the uh, so social strata below that, so the aspiring upward moving uh, people who are not yet uh, having a six digit uh, US dollar amounts on their uh, bank account or, or having four or five apartments, uh, that many of them ha- have taken a, a blow. A lot of small businesses, uh, shops, restaurants, uh, small uh, production companies have been going under during the pandemic, and and so therefore the uh, the number of people who uh, let's say would graduate from uh, a four day trip to uh, Vietnam to a ten day trip to Switzerland for skiing. Uh, the number of, of these people have been reduced and it will take some years before this uh, aspiring uh, group uh, of, of Chinese is, is back on, on, on track uh, that they uh, earn enough money uh, again. So therefore, uh, it is not the case that uh, they, they will not be able to travel anymore because they don't have the money, but they will be more careful and uh, so there will be, and I think the, 
your your listener is is absolutely right that they will look more carefully how many banks they get out of their buck. So what is the uh, value for money they're getting? So there will be less easy uh, throwing their money around uh, because they think, well, it doesn't matter next year. There will be more. So they have uh, learned that things are not always moving up. And of course, the, the Chinese economy doesn't look like ever to go back to 10% uh, GDP increases uh, per annum. So this this period is is over for good, and uh, so that is uh, why uh, you can expect uh, Chinese people being uh, more a bit more careful with their money, and also uh, especially among the the young people. Uh, Gary mentioned uh, the keyword of of lifestyle, so you do have uh, a, a lifestyle of frugality which is uh, becoming more important that you do not brag anymore how expensive uh, the clothes you are wearing have been, but rather that you brag about that you uh, manage to survive on a, a, a small amount of money or that you are using your money in a, in a meaningful way and that you are getting out of this uh, consumerism uh, race that you need to have the the latest uh, fashion and the latest smartphone uh, and and so on. So that this is also something which is not necessarily that these uh, people do not have the money, but that it is not so uh, uh, nice or not not so well received if if they uh, behave like a nouveau riche, and that it is uh, instead of going to a restaurant and say bring me the most expensive bottle of wine you have. Uh, it's now rather that you should know about wine and you should be able to pick the wine uh, according to your taste and not just according to the price tag. So that, uh, that is another another important part to, to see that uh, still, if you offer value for money, if you, if you say, okay, you can have a experience of a lifetime, we offer you this and this, that people will still pay for it. So the probability that you have a, a group of Chinese people uh, spending $1,000 on a helicopter flight for four people is still higher than having Europeans doing the same thing. So, But uh, you will have to offer them the, the right things and so that they can be sure that they get something out of their money. I think that I agree with all those points. I think there's another context as well, as we often talk a lot about the travel industry has to prepare, has to adapt to this new era of Chinese travel. But by the same token, Chinese travelers of all types, whether they're backpackers or whether ultra high luxury, they're going to have to adapt to a new world. You know, the world has changed considerably in the last three years. And in the last year, the world has become more expensive. You know, we're seeing inflation everywhere around the world. So even traveling in Southeast Asia and a lot of countries in our region, it's actually more expensive than it was last time Chinese travelers were here. And overlaying that fact, which is quite important as well, is that the renminbi is, is not as strong as it was. It, it went through a bit of a devaluation over recent months simply because the economy has been struggling. Now, that may come back, probably most likely will start to regain its value against the US dollar, but it has dropped quite, dropped quite significantly. So you, know, you don't have that same strength of the, of the currency in your pocket, which I think makes uh, the question from Mike uh, so important because, yeah, there, as Wolfgang says, there is a, a new degree of frugality that I think will, will perhaps surprise 
to operators around the world. And for my last question um, for you both, I'll, I'll ask Wolfgang first. How can businesses ensure that they are China ready? Maybe you can share one or two uh, top tips <laughs> that businesses should be looking at to make sure that they're China ready. Yes, well, you will not be su surprised if I say, well, you better buy our book <laughs> and, uh, and come to our trainings uh, or do our online trainings uh, and 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 so on. Well, and and seriously, there is a lot of de-learning of getting uh, away from the old images of Chinese uh, being uh, 45 people in a, in a coach jumping out for a photo and eating only Chinese food. We have to get rid of these old uh, ideas and have to uh, relearn what has changed and all the changes uh, which happened, uh, as uh, Gary just said, uh, in, the out, in the outside world while they were caged into their own country. Uh, and also uh, to to learn uh, what uh, has changed uh, in the demand and expectations and preferences of of the Chinese travelers, and the most important uh, tip is is really that uh, look carefully what you can offer and uh, which kind of Chinese uh, people, which segments of the market are fitting to that, and uh, look for. A, also, uh, new communication channels. Uh, so don't just rely on uh, producing videos and putting them on your WeChat channel, which has uh, a thousand followers or less. But uh, for special interest groups, try to uh, contact uh, those associations, universities, what have you, connected with, with this uh, special interests and uh, get your your customers uh, via this organ organizations uh, directly and don't believe in uh, common knowledge so uh, for instance China is just one example China is the fifth biggest Christian country in the world uh, according to the numbers of believers and I think outside of Israel uh, nobody has been really doing much uh, in this respect, in uh, and these are mostly urban middle class people uh, with the money to travel. And you have uh, people interested in China in in all kinds of things. Food is a, is a big topic, uh, so offering not only eating the food but also learning about it, uh, cooking classes, and and so on. That is very very important. Another tip is uh, think of Chinese uh, outbound tourists as women. So you will have uh, more women than, than men again traveling, especially in the leisure part. And think of Chinese tourists as best agers. As, so we have a, a, a growing number of affluent senior citizens or people uh, 60 plus uh, with enough money and time, more time than the younger ones to travel, whereas we have 20% youth unemployment. So we had last year 11 million uh, young Chinese finishing university and maybe one or two million of them found a proper management job. So uh, it will be rather senior citizens uh, traveling and they will spend more money than than the young people. So. Basically, yeah, look carefully 
at the market and and don't uh, fall into the trap that that uh, you think all the Chinese are like that. Uh, they're all the same and 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 they all behave like they maybe behaved twenty uh, years ago when they were for the first time traveling and and were looking around uh, starey eyed. So now it is a, a part of of the of the lifestyle. And you will have to identify which kind of lifestyles are fitting for your offer. Wow, I think I think that was way more than three tips, but also so useful and, and super interesting about those different segments that people can dive into if they if they really look behind that that common held wisdom. Um, Gary, any last uh, tips for our listeners? Yeah, I think the obvious one is is make sure that you're you've upgraded and you've got the new software for the Chinese QR code payments. So whether that's WeChat Pay, AliPay, or Union Pay, make sure that you can accept those because uh, they're non-negotiable now for Chinese travelers. I think one thing that will surprise uh, a lot of tourism industry professionals going forward, particularly amongst the younger generation who are the best informed of, of Chinese travelers, is how sustainable and eco- ecologically aware they are. They spot greenwashing a mile off. If you try to pull the wool over their eyes in terms of sustainable tourism initiatives, that they will they will call you out. So, and the problem is you don't want to be called out by China because if you get something wrong, your reputation immediately goes viral, and it's very very difficult to get it back. So just don't make any basic mistakes. Yes, and I mean you can turn this around into something positive, also by saying you have a much bigger chance of using recommendation marketing, so not relying on you telling the customers how wonderful you are, but on on uh, giving incentives to uh, your customers that they use their communication channels, so what you call KOC, uh, key opinion consumers or customers, uh, that they tell their, their friends and their, their contacts uh, how wonderful their time is uh, with, with you. That will be much more convincing and much cheaper to boot. And, and so therefore, yeah, if you, if you get things wrong, that will go viral. But if you get things right, you have a good chance that also that will bring you the next group of uh, customers uh, uh, to, to your doors uh, free of charge. Well, with those um, really useful tips and insights, um, that brings us to the end of the show for this week. So thank you both for your time and uh, insights. And as I said, I will drop a link to your book and I think you have a training next week as well on our show notes and of course we always hope you enjoyed the podcast listeners and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out you can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show yep and as always you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website the seasiatravelshow.com and you can find us on any international podcast platform. We'll be back to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia and beyond with you soon.